Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. We've got quite a few of our men on our men's retreat this weekend, and uh, praise God for that. I think that God's really been stirring there. I hope that those of you who whose husbands are away, I hope that you will get a husband back that is on fire for his faith um, and is, is ready to do new and great things for the kingdom of God. I, I preached to them last night. I got home after midnight, and my voice is like kind of raspy and very white-like. I'm kind of digging it. I just hope it hangs in there for me. But um, we're digging in, we're continuing in this last piece of righteousness revealed where we're going through the book of Romans and finishing it up together. And I hope that last week was a blessing to you. It was something that was thought-provoking to me and something I'm still chewing on. And now I've got a new word from the Lord here out of Romans 13. And this one, this one is just a really good summarization of a lot of what Christ taught us and a lot of what uh, Paul teaches in many of his letters. We've entitled this one, The Law of Love. The Law of Love. We played around with the idea of what might be called the debt of love. Normally the word debt is looked at negatively and rightfully so, and that's why we didn't put it in the title. But essentially that's what Paul is going to be arguing for today. Now I want to remind you of something in Romans chapter 1. That's the the series theme that we've been through for the last several years, and that's Romans 1.16 where it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. That's what we're praying for today, that His righteousness would be revealed to us. It wouldn't just sit on these pages, but it would invade our hearts and change our lives. Because otherwise we're just playing church. I hope that something changes in me and in you as we leave this place. And so what we saw, if we just do a brief summary, what we saw in the first 11 chapters was a lot of doctrine. Really heavy lifting. You can go back and listen to some of those sermons. I would encourage you to go back and read the text so that you can see it afresh. But there's a lot of proposition there. And now he's moving in chapter 12 to prescription. And that's where we're going to be together. This, this is like, all right, now what do I do with what I've learned? That We're in the to-do section now. And what he said to begin this section is in Romans 12.1, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So now he spoke in a lot of ways in chapter 12 about these relationships. We talked last week about these relationships to authorities, to governing bodies, and to those above us. And now we're going to talk even more plainly about human relationships and this idea of loving one's neighbor. And the only way to get there, Paul reminds us here, is by a transformed mind that we have to live Christ out. And that's the only way that unlovable people become lovable. (laughs) Because often, even you and I are unlovable. We make mistakes, sometimes we're a pain to deal with. And so you've got people in your life, probably a multitude of people, that aren't the easiest people to work with, and yet you owe them what Paul calls a debt of love. Because of the price Christ has paid. So the transformed mind is where we begin. Now, when I talk about this idea of the law of love, I want you to understand something. This law is not like the laws we think of in government. Not like the laws of like that speed limit sign says 55. That is a governmental law. That is a legal law. This is not that kind of law. This is more like the law of gravity. You can like it. You can hate it. But it's still true. You're going to fall. You jump off a building, it's still true. This is what God's talking about here with the law of love, that I believe this is an eternal law. This one never changes. When we get to heaven, love still exists. This is an eternal law. And we will always, always, hear me, oh God, a debtitude, our gratitude of the love He poured out to us. I made up a new word there, yeah, debtitude. We can go for it, but... A gratitude of the love He poured out for us. And the way we show that gratitude is love for others. Love certainly in return to Him, but love for others. And we will never pay that off. And that's great news, actually. Because He's never going to stop pouring out His love for us. It didn't end at the cross. He continues. And so we pour out to others. This is why the Apostle James, in fact, 
And James chapter 2 says, if you really want to fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well when you do so. The royal law, he uses that terminology to describe this idea of a law that's bigger than just the laws of man. This is a royal law. That is, it's the king's law. Love. Love. Think about it. This would be amazing. If we actually lived by the royal law of love, it would change society completely. No longer would we need to worry about wars or murder or adultery or fighting or gossip or racism or divorce or hunger or homelessness. There'd be no crime, no need for prisons. You wouldn't even need to lock your front door because of the law of love. If that were so, we would be living in heaven on earth. We're not there yet, but we can start. The Christian is called to begin. And it's actually a great joy to us to begin out to pour out the love of Christ in us. Our very police would no longer have to arrest anyone. There'd be no need to even carry a gun. And yet, it's not where we're at, but it's where we desire to be. It's like we get the chance now. The reason God didn't take us up the moment we came to salvation is He's given us a chance to practice before we get to the big game. We're practicing now. Because eternity will about loving, be about loving vertically and horizontally. And He'll wash away all this stuff that makes us difficult to be with. <laughs> He'll wipe away all the tears and all the pain. I'm looking forward to that day, but I want to start now. How about you? I pray you, I pray you do. This is a better way to live. There's, there's a lot of ways to go at this. You can decide to, to hold things against people and hold grudges, and you might be, they might very well be deserving of that. You can decide to treat people the very way they deserve to be treated, or you can treat them the way that you have been treated by God. And trust me, you didn't deserve that. In Romans chapter 13, where we're going to be today, I, I believe there's really some clear reasons. Clear reasons. Paul's instructing the believers there in the church of Rome that if they would let God's law of love govern their attitudes and their actions, the world would be changed. As believers, we are to let this, this law of love from God govern our attitudes and actions. And I think you're going to see four clear reasons why this, love, this law of love governs the way we think. So let's dig in. Just a handful of verses here to finish up chapter 13. And this is interesting how he begins. Verse 8, he says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Wow. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come to you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. God bless the reading of His Word. Amen? Amen. There's a lot here. It may be a short verse, but it is packed with information. God's law of love here governs our actions. And here's the first main reason why. It's because love is a continuing debt we owe. Now, I've already began with the intro of that, and that's really the first word of the text. It's an imperative. It's a command verb. He says, oh, now you might think, like I thought, that's odd for him to say that based on what we just read in verse 7. In verse 7, he just told us, and we, we dealt with this last week, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes, revenue, honor, respect. Now he says, oh, no man, nothing. Has Paul contradicted himself? Absolutely not. Because he's not talking anymore. He's, he's essentially saying now, because you're going to pay off your debts, you're not going to owe anyone anything like that. However, there's a debt you'll never pay. 
There's, that's where Paul is going. In fact, his logic is pretty good. One writer says here, because we have paid off all our debts, but one, that is love, this is called a perpetual debt. A perpetual debt, continuous. We will not stop owing this one, and we shouldn't be ashamed of that. You know, debt is normally something you would want to run from or work hard to get through, but this one you work hard to continue to perpetuate the love of Christ in a world that is so broken and far from Him. Romans 13.8, and in the NIV, in fact, got this, I really like the way they phrased it, let no, no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. The continuing debt. John Stott, when writing on it, he says, there is one debt which will always remain outstanding because we can never pay it, and that is our duty to love. We can never stop loving somebody and say, I have loved enough. I've loved enough. You know, there's a, ra- there's a real temptation to do that, and I bet most of you have either said it or been tempted to say it because some people are either so unlovable or so uh, distant and unhelpable that you give up. And I understand you in this. I have people like this in my life that you eventually say, I've done all I can do. I don't know what else to do for them. And that's okay in one sense, that maybe you have done everything you could physically do, but the love of Christ that you would pour out to them cannot stop. That you do not discontinue pray. That you would get to a point where you say, I've prayed all I can pray for this person. That's not love. That's crazy to think too, because if you would really consider yourself, you were never so far from God that He said, you know what? You're too far. You're too far away. I can't actually cover the distance between us. God never will say that. The cross will always be enough, and it should always be enough in us for others. That we would say, you know, some people won't receive it. That we cannot help. They can't, we can't help that they won't receive the love of Christ. But we would never stop offering it. This is really powerful stuff. This word love is agape, unconditional, a sacrificial, a God kind of love that doesn't look at somebody and say, you know what, you have hurt me too much. Maybe you have to distance yourself for a season so that the pain of that doesn't cause you to say things or do things that you would regret. But eventually, the love of Christ should well up in you. I've seen people be able to forgive people for tragic, tragic things. Just awful things. And the only reason that's possible is not the flesh. It's the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ in them. Now, I love what Paul does here. In just one verse, he, he, he covers two different types of one another. He says in the first piece, he says each other. Each other is alelone in the Greek. This is almost always to describe the body of believers. This is often the word we see in the text. There's over a there's over hundred of these in the New Testament, these one another's. And my dad famously says, you can't do the one another's without one another. Right? And so isolating yourself or getting out of community, you, you, you then disobey a great portion of Scripture, which we are to do together. Here he says, love one another. That, that puts on display. In fact, Jesus says this really well. He says, the world will know you by your love for each other. But that is one of the greatest descriptions for the world to see that, you know what, I want to be a part of that. That's authentic family. The church fails greatly at this often. And the world looks in and goes, why are they fighting? Why do they hate each other? Who would want to go to that? Now let's be the kind of church that shows the love of Christ to one another. But he's not done there. He uses this other word, heteros, which is the idea of something that's different from you. It's where we get things like heterosexual, like that is loving the other, the one that is different. Same nature perhaps, but not same type. He's saying love the other, and that means he's saying those outside of the body of Christ. Some I've actually heard argue from this text and others, yes, there's a great call scripturally for us to love the body of believers, but I don't see that we should love the world. Well, lies. (laughs) It's just false, and I could go to other places, but this one does enough for me right here that the one another's also include those outside of the faith. And that's the hard part. In fact, there's another passage that says, well, well, whoop-de-doo, you can love those who love you back. It's a lot harder to love those who wouldn't do that, who would, who would scorn and persecute you, but you should love them too. 
Swindoll, in writing, says different in beliefs and theology, different in personality, different in politics, different in mannerisms, different in tastes and race and values and history. In other words, with love, difference should make no difference. I love that sentence. That one hit me this week. Difference should make no difference. When I look at you, I should look at you the way Christ looks at you. And that is with a great deal of love. A love that I'm just trying to come close to. Just, just Can I just get a glimpse of that love you have for me that can look past all my wrongs? Why do we have this continuing sense of indebtedness? Why is this important? Because the love of Christ should be compelling us this way. Paul says to the Corinthian church, for the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. That means my life has changed. I'm just not the same person anymore. So when, when someone's unlovable, it's not so difficult for me to love them because it's not me anymore. I'm, I'm here walking in Christ, and Christ has no problem loving the unlovable. He loved me, and that was a long shot. I've made a right many mistakes, and my mind's still broken. And yet He loves me continuously. I couldn't help this week. Y'all might not know this, and you may, you may think less of me. I'm okay with that. But uh, I, I'm a fan of, of a lot of guitarists. I'm a fan of rock music. I'm a fan of things like that. So if the person can play guitar well, I kind of will look past how silly they might be in their personal life. I like the Brad Paisley, Paisleys and the Keith Urbans and these kind of guys. I'm not a big country fan. But I like a guy, some of you are like, eh, John Mayer. I like him. He's a good player. He's a good singer to me. Maybe he's not your style. But he's got one song that came to mind this week. The song is called Love is a Verb. Love is a Verb. He says this, It ain't a thing. It's not something you hold. It's not something you scream. When you show me love, I don't need your words. Yeah, love ain't a thing. Love is a verb. So you've got to show me, show me, show me. Yeah, love ain't a thing. Love is a verb. We're really good at playing lip service to this. I love Christ. I love others. And yet nothing we ever do points that truth out. Both vertically and horizontally. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm one of His kids, but what? <laughs> what have you done lately to show that off? Love isn't just something you say, friends. It's something you do. Why? Because that's exactly the love of Christ to us. It doesn't just speak. It works. It pours out on the cross and more. It rises from the grave and it brings you in on mission. It does. So Christ's love is in us now and motivates us and moves us beyond just words, but actual help. God, I feel like is constantly teaching me this particular thing. Like, you want to love me with your lips? I want to see more. I'm going to give you opportunities. There have been people lately, and some of you know uh, some of the, the folks I've been dealing with lately. I helped a lady get to the airport this past week who was uh, a difficult person, but um, I felt the Lord uh, more and more telling me, like, okay, you've got to, you've got to show compassion where you lack. Um, I'm going to, if you would just be, just, will you just put the yes on the table and, and I'll fill in the gaps? That's where I'm at right now. Maybe at some point I'll, I'll actually look more like Jesus right now. I'm just a shell that's saying, okay, God, help me because I'm, I'm generally an isolation kind of person. I'm an introvert. I, I like to be alone. These things are going to continuously be a battle, I think, for me, but I'm done with the excuses. That's not loving for me to neglect people, even if they are a pain in the butt sometimes. <laughs> I'm a pain too. A continuous debt. This is love. This is the, the love of Christ that we would continue to love others even when it gets really hard. The next reason is this, because love fulfills the whole of God's law. That part completely rocked me again. I've heard this before, and yet I had to come at it again in verses 8-10 through 10 and go, wait a minute, are you really saying what I think you're saying? He says that love, the love for one another has fulfilled the law, and he, he describes that in a way that really helps me. He says it fulfills these commandments. And then he, and Paul brings to light the second tablet. If you picture this, there's, they knew this very well in Jewish culture. Sometimes we don't consider it because our, our Bible is many pages. But for them, the Ten Commandments were two tablets. And the first tablet was vertical. And the second tablet was horizontal in relationship. 
These are the first tablet is love the Lord your God. Uh, don't don't commit you know don't get to, into idolatry and remember the Sabbath. That's tablet one, and then tablet two are these things: adultery, murder, stealing, coveting. Now you'll notice there's four out of the five here. He leaves off bearing false witness. Either he leaves it out. There's a little bit of discrepancy here if you have a King James version. Uh, some of the early manuscripts actually have all five. So it's there's a bit of uncertainty whether Paul did include that that last one or not. But nevertheless, even if he didn't, he, he, he does a summarization here that I like. He says, look, and any other commandment. So even if he included all five, he says, and even the stuff you guys want to think of, because here's what the Pharisees had done. They had taken the Ten Commandments and the laws of Leviticus and greatly expanded them and made it difficult, even more difficult to follow God than it already was. The law was already something man could not do. We needed, we desperately needed a Messiah who could do it in our, on our behalf. We don't often fathom this, just how amazing that is that someone died the death we deserved and took on the penalty that we could never pay. We should never be tired of that. But for Paul here, he's bringing up the second tablet and saying, I don't care what commandment you throw at this. This law of love is fulfilling. <laughs> it will fulfill it. This is why Jesus so cleverly answered something that the the Pharisees were trying to trap him with. He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? It says in Matthew 22, 37, that Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Law of love. Covers the, it fulfills the law, both love of God, love of others. The people were baffled by this, not because Jesus said something new. I think they were surprised that he understood this so well. People often forget that Jesus was a carpenter's son. He's not supposed to be this good. He's not supposed to know the Word of God this well. And so the rabbis and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were surprised to hear him so quickly and clearly describe. Passages that are nowhere near each other, and yet this is a known truth. Deuteronomy 6 is where it says, he directly quotes, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. And then he, he throws in Leviticus 19.18, where it says, love your neighbor. I, I had to rethink about that this week. I was like, was Jesus super clever there? Well, yes, in a way, but it was more like they were surprised at how well he understood his Scripture that He was able to connect the dots. That's what Jesus has been all along. The one that connects the dots of all these stories in the Old Testament and all the ones of new. And we go, okay, I finally get it. I understand now what Isaiah was talking about, what Jeremiah was talking about. I get now why David pointed to the Messiah, why he wasn't the Messiah. but He is the summarization, the fulfillment of the law. And he says, love. Love, all of this is summed up by, verse 9, it says summed up. And, and, and it's summed up by love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's interesting. We often think neighbor very specifically. We think this is the person that lives on my street. You know, that's the word neighbor to us oftentimes. Neighbor is those who live near me. But that term is bigger than that. It's supposed to mean any other person <laughs> irrespective of their nation or of their religion, any other person that you run into. That's neighbor. It could be the person you check out in the grocery line. It could be the waitress. It could be uh, the coworker. It could literally be the one who lives next to you. It could be your cousin. This is neighbor. Neighbor is anyone you find in, in your circle at any point in time. That's neighbor. And to that, Jesus gives some great illustrations. There's the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I'm about to get to. And the idea of that neighbor... We know this, love fulfills the whole of God's law. We see in Galatians 5, the whole law is fulfilled in just one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, you really can't separate this. You can't separate love out. Jesus says in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Law and love, they're together. So then after Jesus says this amazing thing, love your neighbor as yourself, they weren't done trying to make a fool of themselves. They were hoping very well to stump Him. All they did was dig their hole deeper. So one of them asks Jesus, okay, well, who's my neighbor then? And that's a stupid question because He knew. He just was trying to trap, 
trying to trap the Lord, and all the Lord did was make them feel really small. And I'll go to Luke chapter 10 to help you understand what He did to them <laughs> on that particular day. I've, I've learned more and more. Uh, certainly at this point in time, you don't, you don't mess with Christ. You know, you, the, better, the better choice is to follow Him and love Him and decide that He is Savior and to walk with Him. I think this same God is unchanging. So when I try to stump God or try to tell Him, you know, your will is a little off, he, uh, he don't play with me. He makes me look just as foolish as these Pharisees. He's done it many times. And In Luke chapter 10, verse 29, we get this parable of the Good Samaritan. He says there, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So Jesus replied this way, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among some robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, let me ask you this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? They aptly said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Now you go and do likewise. Now what did he do? Well, he told a bunch of priests, Levites, and Pharisees, I know what you guys are like. You'll go right around the problem. You, you talk a big game, but it's lip service. And let me talk to you about a person that you guys hate. They hated the Samaritans. Because they don't worship in the right place. They're not like us. And this good Samaritan comes and does far more than this man needed. Denary is a great deal of money. He's taking care of this man. That's what a neighbor is. A neighbor is anybody. <laughs> Anybody in need, and if we want to show the love of God, then we come to people in their times of need. Then we show them when they're in urgent moments. That's fulfilling the whole of the law. There's another passage I just thought of that Jesus basically says, whatever you do for the least of these, you have done unto me. So if you really want to say, I love God, you know, I serve Him, but you constantly dodge the needs of others and you show no love to your fellow man, I believe God is going to have a real big problem with that. And I pray the Holy Spirit convicts you of that now. That you wouldn't get to the place later in life and go, when you come and see before the Lord, and He goes, okay, but what, did, what were you doing here? And what were you doing? Why did you just shirk your responsibilities to show the love of Christ again and again? Why did I pour it out for you unless you were meant to pour it out for others? Commandments, they limit the sin. These commandments here were meant for our good. They put up the guardrails. But if you really want to know how to get at them, love. Love. Love God, love others. Here's the third reason. Because love knows the hour or the urgency of the hour. This is where Paul ends. He ends by giving us timing words. He says in verse 11, kairos. This isn't the idea of chronos, which is your clock, which is looking at the time, ticking down. No, kairos is an opportune season. Something that is to come at the right moment. This means Paul isn't, Paul isn't wrong. Paul isn't here saying something where he was misguided and saying, you know what, the time is near. And we can look back and go, well, Paul, you died 2,000 years ago. You were way off. No, he's, he's not arguing that, hey, it's going to happen tomorrow and I know the hour. No, he's saying at the, t- at the right time, God's going to show up. And we really shouldn't be playing with that because we don't know. That's what Paul's saying. I don't know, so I'm going to prepare like it could be tomorrow. Jesus Himself says this, no man knows the hour. But it's going to come like pow, in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to be quick, so let's not waste time with it. Let's not say, you know what, today I don't feel like being loving. I'm going to go ahead and hold that off till Monday. Lord, give me a day to just hate people. Just a day. (laughs) But you don't know. No one knows the hour. And more than that, you don't know how many opportunities you're going to get with certain people. You just don't know. So he says, wake up. I love this word. He says, wake up from your sleep. The King James Version says, it is high time for you to wake up. 
Some of us, we're just sleeping. Let's just be honest with this. With our Christian faith, we've come to faith. We know Christ Jesus. But after that saving knowledge and that wonder, we decide, you know, I'm going to take a nap till God comes back. I'm going to take a nap on this thing that's the most wonderful news in, in human history. I'm going to sleep on it. I'm going to keep all this love bottled up. He says, you need to wake up. Because guess what? The sun's come up. <laughs> that's the analogy he uses in verse 12. The night is far gone. Look, the day is here. And there's no way you're going to keep the shutters down. It is blaring in your window. Get out of bed. And face the day. I love what one writer <laughs> had this analogy as he dug into it. He says, some of us are going through life in our nighttime clothes. And I got this picture of like people going through life in their pajamas. And actually, this used to happen some when I was at East Carolina University. Just college kids are, are ridiculous. Let's just be honest with that. And some of us were college kids. We were ridiculous. But you would come to class and you did not get up on time. And so you showed up literally in what we would call dorm pants. Pajama pants. They're nice. They're comfortable. They're not meant for public view. All right? They're just not. They look ridiculous. People would show up with these big bulky hoodies in their pajama pants. I'm ready for algebra. Like, no, you're not. You're not. You're sleeping. How did you even get here? And that's how we go through life. That's, what Paul, that's the argument Paul is making here. Get off your PJs. Take a shower. Get some real clothes on. Not just any clothes, too. He says, the armor of light. Because guess what? The day is here, you can't avoid it, and there's a battle on the outside. You better get armor on. Because there's a great many people and a great many forces, and your very flesh itself, that would like to derail the truth of this. They'd like to just totally trash it, so that you would be like the rest of this cog of hate and vanity, instead of love and humility. Put on the armor. And he says in verse 11, the salvation. Now you don't see that necessarily there in the ESV, but there's a definite article before the word salvation there in the Greek. This means he's talking about something eschatological. That means end times. He's talking about a salvation that is to come. He's friends, he's not talking about the salvation you received in Christ Jesus. That is done. This salvation, he says, that is all the nearer than it was when we first believed. That means he's saying, every day that goes by, we're getting closer to the day where God finally finishes the task. This separates us from the rest of the world because a right many people have this impression that human history is fluid and cyclic. A lot of other religions, it's like this is, this is just the way that life goes. It goes up and down and it circles and it circles and it will never end. And yet the God of the Bible is a God that has a beginning a middle and an end. And it will end. And I believe that with all my heart. And so that means I need to be thinking about time. <laughs> because there's a time that's coming where I can't talk to everybody. The urgency of that hour. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Let us then consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to do better. The, the writer of Hebrews and Paul and, and the apostles are saying, don't, don't get slower. Like, ramp this up because we don't know when Christ is coming back. I'd like Him to show up on a day where I am living for Him. Like when I am really doing what Christ has called me to do. Show up on a Sunday morning, Heavenly Father, please. <laughs> But if not, let me be doing the right thing Monday at 9 a.m. Please, God, let me get serious about that. Because if, it, if I've learned anything over just, just the last few weeks, and, and I hate that this is true, but it is true, that it takes suffering sometimes to just shake you right out of your tree. And the pain uh, that my family's going through has given me clearer vision. And I hate that I have to learn it that way because I'd rather not. And yet I'm broken and stubborn apparently. And I recognize today something that's true about urgency. I can't pick up the phone and call certain people anymore. I cannot. They are not available. The person, <laughs> the person that I love to talk to, thank the Lord, he's in heaven with Christ Jesus. I, could, I, would, I would pay great money just to see him again and talk to him and say, man, I didn't see this coming, but I have so many questions I never got to answer or never got to ask. And 
I, I don't want this to happen with people that for whatever reason, I just kept putting that off to tomorrow. I'll show them the love of Christ tomorrow. I don't want to complicate our relationship by talking about the thing that's most important in my life. I don't want to make our, our relationship too complex. And then we lose touch and I never get the opportunity. I'm tired of wasting that. I'm just tired of it. So if you knew, if you knew you would never see someone again, wouldn't you want your last words and actions to be love? Wake up. You don't know. It could be today. There's really not a whole lot out there if I understand Revelation well. I don't think there's a whole lot that hasn't happened. So I'm not sure what God's waiting on. Maybe He's waiting on you. Maybe He's waiting on a loved one for you. I like that idea. This idea that God has, in fact, one of the writers talks about this idea that He has delayed His wrath because of grace. Because He wants to pour out His love to more and more people. That's amazing. I'm good with Him coming tomorrow, but I guess I should think and go, you know, there's a couple people I'd like to see with me. And I'm ashamed that I would ever say, you know, I'll wait till tomorrow. Love knows the urgency, and here's the last reason. Because love is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know how to imitate Christ, as Paul says. He says, imitate Christ, or imitate me as I imitate Christ. But the, the big thing is there, I want to be more like Jesus every day. You want to know what that looks like? It has to begin with love. Because if anything identifies His life better, it's love. That's the clearest description of what Christ is to us. And he gives us some ways to do so. He says, cast off in verse 12 the works of darkness. This is the sinful behavior and put on the armor of light. Get out of those nighttime clothes. Get showered. Put on the armor of God and walk properly. Not in these other ways. Now, there's some words in here that we don't love. And yet here they are <laughs> in the text. We've got the word orgies, which is not the word you would think. I, I actually, as soon as that word appeared, I'm thinking, I know exactly what that word is in the Greek. I went and looked at it. It wasn't that word. And I'm like, huh, what's going on there? Because this word has a funny English. We've actually taken this to, to mean purely something that's sexual. But it's not actually at its root. At its root is the idea of wild parties. And what he's really saying is, don't be a part of this specific thing he was seeing in his day, which is still happening. And that is the idea of just reveling and, and, and getting overly, like the, the idea of, of wild partying and drunkenness are kind of, there's a reason they're together. It's because these things lead to one another, that you, you stay out late partying in the streets. And this, he's talking specifically of this carousal, if you will. And, um, I don't think he's necessarily saying you shouldn't have birthday parties or you shouldn't go out with your friends. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about nights that end with trouble. I used to hear, like, if you're out past 2 a.m., that's what was it, like the witches, the witching hour or something? I was trying to remember what that was. But anyway, like, only bad things ever happen to me after 2 a.m. generally. Like, this just something stupid's probably going down. Um, even if I'm up in my, if, if I'm in my own house and I look at the clock and it's 2 a.m., I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what, what is this? And that's what he's talking about here, that this, this road to destruction that doesn't lead to eternal, valuable things. It just leads to, to broken, aimless pursuits. And then he gives us two more. He says sexual immorality and sensuality. Now that word is what it is. It's the word koite, which has really translated well to English. It means to, to bed or couch or cohabitate. It is exactly that. That we would take that flippantly. And just live like the world lives. We have to be honest with ourselves on this. Christianity is, is looking weirder and weirder all the time to the public eye. That we would say, marriage is good. That's getting pretty unpopular now. Every, everything I study, everything I read, talking uh, people that, that, that get on and philosophize about these things, they talk more and more about how why would young men want to marry? Why would, why would, because it's so, in fact, one stat showed that three out of four marriages fail. I didn't know it was quite that high, but I guess there are some stats in some states that are at that high, 75%. So why would I want to do that? In fact, I heard one comedian talking about it. Yeah, why would I want to sign up for something like, okay, so this could lead to me losing half my stuff? Sign me up. I'm like, well, that's funny. Everybody laughed. I'm like, well, that's terribly sad, dude. Because why do I think marriage is good? Because I think two are better than one. I think the cord of three strands is not easily broken. I am informed by the Word of God. Or my culture is not. 
I'm also informed by the possibility that maybe God desired sexual coite for the marriage. Boy, call me, I'm old-fashioned. Holy cow, we should live together. Something's wrong with Jonathan. Wait a minute, it's in my Bible. What Bible are you reading? I don't understand. What happened here? And I can tell you something. There's nothing more fulfilling than waiting. There's nothing better than what God actually planned. His design was better than human. And He came up with marriage. It's His thing. We don't get to tell God what it is. He told us what it is. We don't get that chance. And so, this idea that Paul's talking about, this is not walking in light. No, that thing was meant between you and the wife that God gave you. There's where it belongs. Then he finishes with the last couplet, which is quarreling and jealousy, which sadly, we must be honest, inside the church is the one group that we don't think is too bad. And yet it's in the same list. How terrible that we would quarrel be jealous of one another, that we would look at this blue carpet and go, oh, gosh, I wish it was red. I don't. Personally, I don't. But I don't, I don't like blue either, but I care not. Whatever God wants. This is the carpet that was in here when we arrived. And yet churches have split on sillier things. I can't believe that. Quarreling and jealousy are not the armor of light. No, put on the Lord Jesus. That means I put on love. That means I depend on Christ. I manifest the person of Christ in my life. That means I've got to have a lot less of my natural broken state. I've got to say, you know what? These things that I've been making excuses for and saying, well, that's just the way I am. You know, my whole family were easily angered. And so that's just the way. No, that's not okay. Because that's not Jesus. You can make excuses, and that is probably true. It probably is genetically your disposition to have a short temper or genetically your disposition to just be more tired than the average person. And some of you are that way. You just have no energy. Maybe you need to eat better. I don't know. Maybe exercise would help. I run into people, I just, I'm just tired a lot, or I don't know if I can do that. I'm so busy. And then if I could actually break down your schedule, I'm like, are you sure? Like, but I'm just, I'm, my, my natural disposition is not love. Well, duh, so is mine. My natural disposition is rebellion against God. I'm not surprised by that. You can give me a thousand excuses. Sure, they're unique to you. Whoop-de-doo. We're all sinners. And yet, the love of Christ in me changes me. I love what one writer says about this. He says, there's no human means for Christ-like living. They don't exist. But God has provided for us that which we lack. We must simply walk in the Spirit of Christ by faith. So I make the decision. This means I have to kind of remove some things where I say, you know, I'm not, I'm not at my best in the morning. And fair enough, I'm not, I'm not a morning person naturally. I'm, I like to stay up late. Some of you are cheery and chippy in the morning. Maybe we need to put you outside to greet people. Because <laughs> smiling faces, I might need to see that when I arrive. But, but it's not a good excuse for deciding, you know what, I don't want to spend time with Christ when I start my day. Because I, no matter how... I'm stumbling around my house and I'm barely pouring coffee. No matter how bad off in the morning, I need desperately to hear from God. And I really need Him to fill me up. My first thing, when I step my foot out of bed, I don't care how tired I am, should be, all right, God, today is the day you've made. I'm walking with you now. i got to admit, I'm tired. I'm sore. Maybe I do more of my study when I'm at my best. Maybe I get into His Word towards lunch or maybe in the evening. But I need to at least start with prayer. There's no excuse for that, I don't think. And Christ had this habit of every day getting off alone and spending time with God. I feel like if Jesus needed it, boy, I, I definitely, I'm not even close. And I want to finish with this last little piece that he gives us to close 14. I could almost, I feel like I could preach a whole sermon just on this one word that he gives in verse 14 that I had not seen, at least not clearly until this past week. He gives the word provision. He says, make no provision for the flesh. I love what one writer had to say about this. And I've been chewing on it ever since. He says, this is the idea of make no forethought, make no plan for the flesh is a warning that sin often begins with a plan. Or at least, the decision to leave the option open. I think that's true. we got to be proactive. That means, and I love this, plan ahead to make sin inconvenient. Make sin inconvenient. 
There's where I fell. That was so good for me this week when I, when I read that and when you know what? Too often I do this second part he's talking about that I leave the option open. I don't close the door. I decide to stay up beyond when my wife and kids go to bed and for some reason my television finds a channel it shouldn't be on. That wouldn't happen if I would just make no opportunity. <laughs> if I would make no provision for my brokenness which struggles. I didn't plan on that but I left the option open. I, I, I shouldn't do this if, if, if I struggle with alcoholism. I shouldn't, for some reason, go out of my way to go buy that bar on my way home from work. That's not smart. That's making provision for the flesh. I shouldn't keep alcohol in my house. I'm going to stop buying it. If I struggle with my weight, and I know this is getting to a point where I'm prioritizing it in weird ways, I probably shouldn't keep sweets on my kitchen countertop. You do that to me, I'm going to eat them. My, my, I hear this from my dad almost every week. If we study at home with him, he's like, your mom's done it to me again. Look at the countertop. And it'll be filled with like oatmeal raisin cookies. And I know for some of y'all, you're not into that. But for me and him, I'm like, golly, we're both going to get fat today. Like, don't put it where I can get it. Because I don't have the greatest self-control. Know thyself well enough to know that sin is very convenient. And we need to put it somewhere distant. And on the other side of that, let me make my devotional life with Christ super convenient. That when I get up in the morning, my Bible's sitting right there. Or maybe when I get up in the morning, the coffee's already, I smell the aroma, and I'm like, okay, okay, I'm ready. Or that the, I do these little bitty steps in my life. Like when I turn on my car, the first thing it comes to, I've already set my radio, is going to be a worship song. I mean, just I make pursuing God convenient and it makes sinning inconvenient. This is great news. I'm helped by it and I'm going to work on this with you. Put on the new self, which is love. Put on Christ. Colossians 3 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And putting on Christ, we put on God's love and we live like Jesus in this world. This is what John writes in 1 John. God is love. And all who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. But we can face Him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Put on Christ. It's not hypocrisy. It's making decision to get out of your own way. It's, it's knowing your weakness. And knowing He is strong in it. Do you understand this? I pray you do. That God's love can govern your life. And that it would totally change your relationships both to Him and to your neighbor. Love is a continuing debt we owe. It fulfills the whole of God's law. It's urgent. And we must put on Christ to really love. Let's pray together now, church. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much, first of all, that You poured out Your love to us. That You don't give us this commandment based on some obscurity or something You didn't already prove. What a terrible faith that would be, God. But that is not You. That the love of Christ poured out to me, not just in word, but in a deed that is beyond imagination. That God, You sent Your Son Jesus to die on the cross for me. That You painted the picture of love in a way of suffering that I could never, ever Look past. Now I admit, God, I often struggle here because my tendency is to be isolated. My, my tendency is to be judgmental even. My tendency is to look at someone's life and, and think, well, you know, I probably wouldn't have done what you just did and that's how you got yourself in that silly situation. That's how my mind often works and that's not you, God. And I'm thankful more than that that that's not the way you treat me. Because I'm deserving of condemnation, and yet you didn't give me that. Instead, you gave me love. I want that to continue to blow my mind. I don't want to get tired of that anymore, God. I pray first and foremost you would do in me and do in this church. You, you would encourage us with your love. 
Certainly the reminder of the gospel is pouring out of your love. But show us daily how your love is continuing to pour out as we pray, as we read your word, as we spend time with you and get to know you better, God, that your love would be more and more apparent and evident in our life. Would you do that for us, God? Because we can't do that part. But even bigger than that, God, would you do in our church and us, help us to be people governed by the law of love. That, that we would do this so good that the community would begin to think, that, that Eastgate church, those people are awfully nice. <laughs> and they don't know what the real meaning of that is. Boy, they're awfully loving. They treat each other really well. And now they're starting to pour that out on the city. I pray that's true. You know, 12 people made a big difference in the world. <laughs> they changed the world. And it was the love of Christ that did it. And there's roughly 50 or so of us here often. Imagine what we could do if we follow the law of love. God, would you do that in us? Help us to pour it out. First, pour it in us and guide us to pour it out to others. Help us to not tire or not lose, not lose courage. Some people are hard. Some people are hard to love. Some people are mean. Some people are difficult. And you know their hearts, God. You know how you can break down those walls with your love. I pray you would use us to do it. I'm praying for you, friend, today, if you showed up today and you know that the love of God is not in you. And the reason the love of God is not in you is you've not yet said yes to Jesus Christ. He's not yours. He's mine. He's many of your neighbors. But you know He's not yours. You've not said yes to Jesus for yourself. Maybe your parents did it. Maybe you've got friends. But you know. You're not walking with the Lord Jesus yet. So this idea of His love pouring out in your life, it's more like something you know with your head, but you don't know it with your heart yet. If that's you, my friend, there's no reason to wait. Understand the urgency of the hour. No man knoweth. No man knows the hour. Christ come today, and I pray He does. I pray I'm ready. I pray you're ready, my friend. If that's you today, would you say yes to Jesus Christ? knowing that His love is so poured out in your life. And you, the, only, the only step for you is faith and belief and confession. And then, through that, the works of Christ will pour out in your life. If that's you, my friend, pray with me this simple prayer of confession. As Paul writes in Romans 10, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. My friend, you will be saved. Pray with me this. Jesus Christ, I, I believe You are Lord of all things. You are in charge. I believe that You took on the cross. You died there for my sake. My sin, my brokenness, my guilt, my shame, the, the evil thoughts, the evil deeds, those things have been paid for on the cross. I believe that today. More than just something with my head, I'm putting my faith in it. I'm trusting God that You have truly saved and redeemed me. And God, I believe You raised Jesus Christ from the dead and that He lives today. And there is no tomb anywhere that holds Him. I believe that. God, I'm asking, would You now pour out Your love in me and through me that I would know You more every day and that I would share the love of Christ with others. My friend, welcome to the family of God. And we pray right along with You, God, pour out Your love in us and through us that people would come to saving knowledge by the way we love one another and the way we love you and them. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.